Good evening, everyone, and welcome to The Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell. I'll be your host tonight here at The Real Science Exchange, and tonight we cuss and discuss uh, many things during my favorite segment, and that's the Fabled Journal Club with uh, Dr. Bill Weiss. So welcome, Bill. Thanks for joining us again tonight. It's good to, good to be back, Scott. Thanks. So before we uh, dive into tonight's paper, let's uh, start by introducing um, our uh, uh, guest, Bill. If you wouldn't mind going ahead with that. Well, first, first question, what's in your glass tonight? Well, in, in recognition of the Buckeyes beating Notre Dame a few weeks ago, I have a, a <laughs> Something green? Irish, Irish lager. So. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Outstanding. Outstanding. Uh, would you mind going ahead and, and introduce your future Buckeye guest tonight, Bill? Okay, uh, my pleasure to introduce Kirby Krogstad. I'm not Norwegian, so I can't <laughs> pronounce it exactly right. Uh, he's completed his PhD at Michigan State, he got his master's at uh, University of Nebraska, and I'm happy to say he will be becoming a Buckeye at the first of the year. Uh, up at Worcester, up at OERDC, kind of taking my old position. Yeah, so. good deal, good deal. So welcome, Kirby. Kirby, I'm going to ask you. you the same question. What's in your glass tonight? Um, I'm a whiskey guy, so it's usually uh, usually whiskey of some sort, Woodford, when I'm uh, not on a tight budget. <laughs> okay, <laughs> very well. All right, and finally, happy to uh, welcome back uh, my good friend and co-host, Dr. Clay Zimmerman. Clay, what's in your glass tonight? In honor of the season, I have some apple cider in my glass tonight. We've got a new pub in town. It's called a Back Road Brewing, brand new. And they've got a pickle-flavored cider that I absolutely love. Uh, really? Yeah, it's, and yeah, you either love it or you don't is what they tell me. But I happen to be on the uh, I love it side of it. So anyway, I've been having some cider, and I think of you, of course, as always. But uh, what's in my glass tonight? Well, uh, Kirby mentioned Woodford's Reserve. That's what I have tonight. And I'm having that in, in honor of a, a new friend of mine, uh, Mark Scott from Fibro Animal Health. Uh, Mark and I attended the IFCN conference last week in Chester, uh, England. Um, and uh, we met up in the pub afterwards. And uh, Mark's a fan of the, the podcast, and so we, we enjoyed, uh, both enjoyed a Woodford's Reserve. So here's to uh, Mark, Scott, and new friends. Cheers. 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 Tonight's PubCast stories are brought to you by Reassure Precision Release Choline. Reassure is the most researched encapsulated choline on the market today, consistently delivering results to your transition cows of higher peak milk reduced metabolic disorders, and even in utero benefits to her calf leading to growth and health improvements. Visit balchem.com to learn more. To begin our conversation tonight, Bill, I'd like to, uh, for you to share why, why did you select this paper and what, what is the hypothesis? Well, the, the paper is, I'm going to abbreviate the title, it's a little long, but it's the effect of amylase enhanced corn silage with different dietary starch concentrations on milk production, digestibility, and some blood metabolites. And it's in the Journal of Dairy Science earlier this year. I didn't write the month down, but earlier this year in 2023. 
uh, I picked this one is this was when I was still an extension. This this silage was just coming on on the market for dairy cattle, and so we were getting lots of questions on it. Um, so I've kind of followed up on it. We we did a little bit of research right at when I was leaving at Ohio State, so I have have an interest of it, and it is of, of practical uh, importance to to dairy producers because. You know, selecting hybrids for silage is a major decision they have to make every year. So, you know, as we kind of jump into this, Bill, I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind kind of explaining how uh, amylase uh, enhanced corn silage actually works and, and what it's intended to do. I should let Kirby take that. He's he's the expert. So I'm going to if you give us a little background on the gene, how it's in there and, and what it was originally for and what it's being used for now. Yeah, yeah. So, um, like like Bill was saying earlier, this is a cool project to do because it has such um, practical application. And I didn't realize how relevant this gene was till I got out to Michigan. It's it's being used in, on more and more acres every year. But all the amylase itself is is a, a gene enhancement in the kernel of the corn. Um, it was originally designed for ethanol production. Actually, they were trying to increase, um, I think, ethanol efficiency yield from every bushel of corn. You know, to continue increasing. Um, the efficiency of ethanol production. And I think the story they tell is um, they had a farmer who grows corn and has a feedlot, and he had some of this leftover experimental corn that had the amylase in it. And so, or the enhanced amylase gene, he's, well, I'm going to feed this to my cattle. And he had two pens side by side. And every time he walked them, he just thought that one pen looked really good and their gains were a little bit higher than the other group. And he brought out, brought out the company folks and researchers said, what do you think of this? And so then they realized maybe they've got another application for this technology. So it's really, it's just, it's inserted in, in the genome and it's along, it's in the endosperm alongside the starch is some of the logic. And, um, so basically the idea is once it gets in the room and the amylase is right where it needs to be, breaks up the starch, makes it more available um, and hopefully more digestible for the cow. And so that's kind of what we were looking at is, is uh, when you put your money where your mouth is, does the digestibility in milk show up in some different scenarios? And the, the gene is only in the kernel. It's not in the plant like, you know, BT corn that's throughout the, throughout the plant. But this gene or this is expressed only in the kernel. And so you said in the beef cattle, it, uh, it, it, it activates in the rumen. I'm going to assume mm -hmm. that uh, for dairy cattle in the silage, it's going to activate in the, in the, in the pit, right? Um, if, now, this is where I get a little bit fuzzier. I think it's supposed to be activated upon temperature change. So they say, like, once the silage heats up and ferments, it's supposed to activate a little bit. And then once it hits the body temperature in the rumen, it's supposed to be more active because it's a high temperature active amylase. The, the original biochemistry paper about the gene has some more details on that. Um, but I think the temperature change is what they talk about mostly. And I mean, it's, it's interesting because the beef cattle research does show some, some gain to feed benefits when it's dry rolled corn. Um, I believe when it's, uh, when this corn is ensiled as high moisture corn or corn silage, they don't see it so much, but in dry rolled corn, they actually saw a little bit of a bump in their feed efficiency. So there is some encouraging evidence out there in the beef and dairy um, so far with this, with this hybrid or with this um, gene in these hybrids. Yeah, and, you know, unlike BMR, which is, you know, great silage, but you have a significant yield drag with BMR. Mm -hmm. This one doesn't appear to have any agronomic issues. So the yields are very similar. It's just the gene is the only thing really different on this. So that was actually the only thing I hadn't heard so far. Have you been hearing that from the field, Bill? I, I'm not familiar with any yield trials or anything like that, but I do get that question. 
Yeah, the yield, the, there is some yield data from the company. And I just was wherever I was just at, I was hearing some of this again, Dairy Expo, they were talking about different hybrids. And it doesn't appear to have um, a yield drag. Or if it is, if it is, it's very, very small. Well, that's good to know. So Kirby, in this trial, were, were the two hybrids the same other than other than the alpha amylase? Yeah, so I, I try to be careful about using the word hybrid because I don't know if that's the proper word in this case, but it was an isoline corn hybrid and the same hybrid just with the amylase gene enhancement. Um, and that's actually, thankfully, when you're doing, and I think uh, Bill could speak to this too, when you're doing forage research and you ensile two forages, you're kind of just praying they turn out relatively similar in some cases. And that's what I was most happy with is these were side-by-side -side plots, you know, just one plot of each right next to each other in the field. Um, and after f fermentation and the nutrient specs and all that, they actually came out quite similarly. So we felt like we had a nice comparison of, is this gene itself um, helpful to the cow? Because um, the starch and fiber came out relatively close, which we were quite pleased with. Yes, just to get into the paper here, you, you, the two you have four treatments. One is the two, two uh, I'm going to call them hybrids. I don't know if that's the name or not, but the two types of corn silage. And then as a, as a factorial, you had a 20, 25% and 30% diet starch. And whenever I read papers with factorial, the question that comes up or that should come up to everybody is what, what interaction, that's the only reason to do a factorial, what interaction were you expecting in your, say your hypothesis? Yeah, I was, I was expecting for Enogen to, well, the alpha, alpha amylase enhanced, the brand name is Enogen, um, to perform better at the lower starch concentration. Because my thought is once you go to the higher starch that you would have some subclinical rumen acidosis and possibly some feed intake issues, especially because these are mid-lac, mid-lac, late-lac cows. And so they may not need all that diet fermentability and they might back off on feed intake a little bit. And so that was my initial hypothesis. Because I'll tell you what, being in South Dakota, Nebraska, um, we don't feed nearly as much starch as they do out here in Michigan. I was uh, on farms with a nutritionist and I couldn't believe it. I was like, my God, you guys like your corn out here. You know, it's in, in South Dakota, Nebraska, 24, 25, 26 starch, pretty normal. Um, some guys will push it a little farther when they have really good forage. But man, everybody out here is like 29, 30, 31. And so I was impressed by the amount of starch these cows can handle during my time here in Michigan. Yeah, and then I think one thing we just need to remind listeners of is the gene is only in the silage, it's not in the corn that you fed. So, you know, the, I, I didn't calculate it, but only a certain proportion of the diet starch is actually mm -hmm. in, in, in the corn silage. And then the other really interesting thing I think you did here, and that is your, you know, your hypothesis said basically that in fresh corn silage, or early corn silage, it should, may have a bigger effect because you know, after months and months of sitting in the silo, we think starch digestibility increases uh, in vivo, even though that's mm -hmm. data is not real clear on that. So that, that I think was really good where you did a, um, I think it was like 40 days in siling your first digestion, then you did it mm -hmm. six or eight weeks later. I think that was really good. Yeah, thank you. That was, that was Dr. Bradford's brainchild. And we wanted to do 15 days, but you know how logistics happen. Sometimes you can't get the cows in time. And then one other last detail here, you did kernel process 
both silages uh, mm-hmm. with the same chopper. Do you have any metric on how well you process this, you know, kernel processing score or what you set the rollers at or something like that? Um, I don't have that on hand. All I have is we were um, kernel scoring throughout the day, you know, the Pioneer Cup kernel mm-hmm. score. And um, our one of our uh, teachers and them, the nutritionists have benchmarks that they set and we were meeting those throughout the day. Um, so all I can say is they were both, I would say, processed to to meet our nutritionist expectations. Okay. I think we, we can go ahead and well one other thing you measured before I forget is is a measure of, of inflammation. You use your mm-hmm. Q phage proteins. Um, and I all you know there's a bunch of those. <laughs> and you used two of them. Did was there you use uh, SAA serum amyloid mm-hmm. and then haptoglobin. Is there any reason you pick those two? all the other ones or mostly i think right now in the dairy science literature those are probably the two most prevalently measured you could probably add lbp lipopolysaccharide binding protein as well but um we have high confidence in these two elizas you know the hard part about working in bovines is it's hard to find bovine specific elizas that you have confidence in and we have a great deal of confidence in these two assays and we have so much more data especially on haptoglobin so that's why we picked those it was it was um you know, that there's other things to compare to within the literature and within our own data in the lab. Okay. Well, if you want to just explain real brief, don't, we don't want details on stats or anything like that, but just the basic outline of the experiment. Big, mm-hmm. big picture items. Yeah. So the experiment was um, eight weeks long. We had a two week covariate and then a six week feeding period. Um, where we had these four diets and we had 11 cows on each of these four treatments. Like you said, to test the interaction that we thought would show um, increasing starch with this hybrid may actually reduce performance. And we saw the opposite. Um, well, I shouldn't say we saw the opposite. We didn't observe that interaction. But so that's kind of the big picture of the experimental design. We did weekly blood samples, weekly milk sampling. And as you mentioned, we had a unique aspect of this experiment with two digestibility periods. Traditionally, you do a digestibility period after five or six weeks on a diet so they can adapt to it. Um, but we really wanted to do two things. One, look at the digestibility soon after harvest. And then two, look at the digestibility again six weeks later, with the idea being one that longer ensiling would reduce the eff- efficacy or reduce the impact of that um, enhanced starch enzyme. And the second being there's some data, there's a couple of abstracts from, I think it's 2019 ADSA, where they had some silage fermentation profiles of antigen or the alpha amylase enhancement and the non-enhanced isoline. Um, and the enhancement actually seemed to promote a more rapid stabilization of the silage. So, uh, you know, that initial spike and then come back down and stabilize seemed to be more rapid and efficient with this alpha amylase enhancement. Alpha amylase enhancement. So that was part of the hypothesis here too, is these cows might adjust more smoothly switching to this um, amylase enhanced silage, which is why we have some of the silage fermentation data. But big picture, that's what the study looked like. And you used just to on power, I think, 44 cows. So it's a well-powered, mm-hmm. well-powered study here. Um, on results, there's a couple of things that I found surprising. Um, one is the, you know, on the in vitro uh, NDF digestibility at very early on. I don't know if this was week one of ensiling or week one of the experiment. I didn't quite mm-hmm. understand that. There was a huge difference. And it'd be, what, what do you think? And, you know, this is an amylase enzyme, not a fibrolytic enzyme. 
What are you thinking? This was the in vitro data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we spent a lot of time chewing on that, um, and I spent a lot of my time thinking about NDF digestibility. But we're, long story short, we're not entirely sure. Um, but the only thought we have, and this actually came from an amylase enzyme paper, I think you had published back in 2011, 2012, that maybe, you know, we're freeing up some simple sugars or polysaccharides with this enzyme in the corn. And then that's allowing microbes to have greater action and more energy available to them to, to, um, uh, actually chew through all this fiber. But I mean, we, we really don't know, but we were surprised and, this is one of those interesting um, results that actually carried through in vivo. So we had the in vitro NDF that bumped by three points, and then we carried that through and we saw a bump in fiber digestibility in the cow. So it was kind of interesting. We were actually, that's the most exciting result of this paper for us. um, And we're not sure where that comes from. And, you know, by six weeks, then the in vitro, again, in vitro fiber digestibility was the same essentially between treatments. So what, Again, what do you think is going on there? Is the, the enzyme dying off or is the, the control just getting better by sitting in acids for six weeks? I, th- I personally think the control, like you said, the control is kind of catching up. Um, I think with, it's like, it's like what fuels available at the time. And I think maybe there's just more fuel available in that alpha amylase enhanced kernel early on. And then six weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks later, maybe that control hybrid without that amylase enhancement is caught up and that there's the same fuel left. Um, I wish I had a better, clearer answer, but I'm still chewing on that one. I'm not entirely sure. And I defend here in three weeks, so I better come up with a better response. (laughs) Your advisor might be listening to this get more questions. Kirby, I'm, I'm curious, in, in the control corn silage, is, is there alpha amylase activity in that in those kernels or, so or to, none? To be clear, we don't have that data from this paper, but there is uh, two other publications that have that. And I think both the Cueva 21 and Rebello, the Ohio State paper, 2022 or 2023, excuse me. Um, I think both of those had some amylase measures, but... Um, a control silage has a very low basal level of amylase activity. It's not zero, but it's near zero. Um, okay. And this enhancement, according to the Penn State data from 2021, it um, increases that activity. I think it's like f- sevenfold, tenfold. It's it's a very large dramatic okay. increase. And, um, and that and the Penn State data was after uh, like 180 days of ensiling. So that, that amylase is very stable and very active for a long time. Okay. Kirby, I'm kind of curious, uh, knowing what you know now, how would you uh, design the, the protocol maybe to take a look at what's happening there in the silage? Would you maybe track microbial populations and mm-hmm. species, those kinds of things over time? Just kind of curious. Yeah, I think if I could do this again, and I'm, I'm hoping to be able to do something like this again, crossing my fingers when, when I get down into Worcester, um, I would like to do a longer term study 12, 18 weeks, something like that, but then start feeding it right at green chop, you know, green chop, start feeding it right away, comparing these two hybrids. Cause the, the idea be may, being that if ensiling takes away some of the benefit of this alpha amylase enhancement, we would see that over 12, 16 or 18 weeks in a set of cows. Um, that would be what I would probably redesign. I think there is some microbial data from Penn State um, in the dissertation of this student that published this work. And they have 
some minute differences in the microflora of the rumen, but I don't think they were very substantial um, that I think, you know, that's driving the digestibility difference. So I, I would think more of the timeline and, and time re- timeline relation to harvest would be really interesting. Yeah. I was even thinking maybe looking at microbial populations within the silage itself and oh, how that sure, may yeah. be changing. Yeah. Do, do, do you know of any, I know that I read the Penn State paper, but has anybody looked at amylase activity, say from green chop, in the silage from green chop up to even 300 days. Not that I've seen. Okay, because I haven't either. And I said the Penn State one says it's still active, but I don't know if it's as active as it was at, at day zero. I don't right, know. It's you can't, you can't assume that level was there at zero or there at 300. Yeah, I agree. Uh, um, you know, we talked about in vitro fiber. You looked at seven hour starch mm-hmm. disappearance and it did the same thing, big difference on day Again, I'm calling, I think it's week one mm-hmm. and essentially no difference on week six or seven. Um, again, what that does to me is the more strange than the fiber one. It's what, what do you, you have any idea on why it, why the difference disappears? I guess not that it yeah. was different, but why did it disappear? Well, I think I, for me, that logically lines up with some of Ferretto's work that as that starch kernel ferments in a silo over the time over time we get a little more rapid starch digestion and that maybe once that kernel sits in the silo for six eight ten weeks um we lose some of the advantage of the amylase enhancement i I think that lines up fairly nicely but um the other thing to consider and, and anyone that's worked with in vitro knows this is those are variable assays right and and sometimes you could just have an assay to assay um, variability as well. So there's that to consider. So like with some of these in vitro data, I would like to see them repeated either in more studies or even just do a time series analysis with some more plots. Cause that's the other thing to remember. These were one plot side by side. So it's not a, um, really well replicated design for the planting of the hybrid. Yeah. And I was in dairy expo just last week, giving a talk and I, I've gotten this question. I don't know how many times, but I just got it last week. And that is what, how does a nutritionist or what value is this seven hour starch or whatever hour you want, but in vitro starch disappearance. What we know it doesn't predict total track starch, I guess, but that I, I can always answer that one, but what do you use it for? I, th- I think it's a it's still a fairly reasonable tool to to compare things relative to each other. Um, so if you have two silages that you know might be the endosperm difference or or just some innate difference in the in the starch that makes it more or less digestible, I think it's nice to have the relative comparison. Um, but when it comes to feeding cows in the field, that you're right. It, it doesn't have the utility of we're going to get X more energy out of this hybrid or X more microbial protein because the seven hour starch said so. Um, so I think it's still a nice tool for relative comparison. But um, beyond that, it, it probably needs polish to really have really strong field application like that. Well, we hop into the, the production results and can mm-hmm. you give us just an overview of the major, major production findings you found? Yeah, I think um, fairly simply is is the alpha amylase enhancement didn't provide uh, benefit in this in this case, but we saw a pretty consistent benefit of the additional dietary starch, increasing feed efficiency, increasing milk protein yield, um, with limited to no interactions on those results. So that um, that would be the bottom line take home for this paper is 
the amylase didn't provide a benefit, but the, the higher starch diets certainly did. And, and the starch was high, um, higher efficiency mm-hmm. and I can't remember and high, well, higher milk, uh, energy corrected milk and higher feed efficiency basically. Yep. Yep. And, and mostly driven by milk protein, particularly. We got more milk protein out of those higher starch cows. So Kirby, what was, what was the stage of lactation? of cows in the study? Yeah, that's a great question because that's kind of um, one of the things I like to think about in the in context. So these cows started at about 160 days in milk. And so then you've got to realize we started at 160 days, but it was a 42-day study or a 42-day feeding period, you know, six weeks. Um, so by the end of it, they were 200, 200, 210 days. So they were tailing off um, production as, as we came to a close. So the um, I was actually, I'm glad you asked that because that's what I'd mentioned is I think that's a gap that there is in this data is we don't have, um, I think we have two, of the, there's three published studies. I just had an article in Hordes that kind of reviews the data for this amylase enhanced silage. And I think two of them come in mid-lactation cows that 130, 140, 150 days. And one of them has cows that started at like 80 or 90 days in milk. What we don't have is that fresh cow. Um, and that really early lactation cow. So I think that's a gap here and something to be considered about because um, it's, it's easier to drive up peak milk in those early cows and cha- than changing milk in a post-peak late lac cow. It's pretty tough to move those cows off their trajectory. Kirby, did you uh, measure uh, body weight and body condition score? And if so, did you see any differences there with the amylase mm-hmm. and, and, and higher starch diets? Yeah, we did. We did measure body weight and body condition weekly. Um, and we actually, we had a head scratcher on the body weight result. Again, we didn't see um, results of the alpha amylase enhanced silage. What we saw was a bit of a head scratcher on body weight. We anticipated that these higher starch cows, these higher starch fed cows would experience greater body weight gain in the later lactation period. Um, And we weren't prepared for what we saw, which was the opposite. The low starch cows actually gained a bit more body weight than the high starch cows. But when we put that alongside the differences in energy corrected milk, it makes a bit more sense. Those high starch cows continued making a bit more milk later in lactation and the low starch cows made a little less. So maybe that's where that body weight change difference um, comes through. But we were not expecting that. So the high starch cows, more more milk, less body weight gain. The low starch cows had more body weight gain, but a little less milk. So was it Kirby was, what did you see as far as dry matter intake as you progressed through mm-hmm. the study? Yeah. So the, um, the big picture was again, the amylase enhanced silage didn't have an effect on the feed intake, but we did see that through the study, there was an interaction. We had our week one versus week six feed intake, the week one of the study period, the experimental period versus the final week. Um, and those high starch cows tail off an intake. Um, as lactation progresses, which um, I, I'm fairly confident aligns with with data as cows get later in lactation, they start to tail off intake based on energy a little bit. Um, so I think that aligns nicely with how we understand the biology working. But again, it wasn't an enormous difference. It was three pounds. Um, so it's not like it was a 10 pound difference in intake by the end, but, but a substantial enough which is where the difference in feed efficiency really stems from is those higher starch cows tailed off an intake, but they maintained the 40 kilos of energy corrected milk. Did, did, excuse me. Did you, on the feed efficiency, did you adjust for the difference in body weight change? In other no, words, the, give... the feed efficiency is just gross feed efficiency, milk over feed. Okay. 
because you know that with when they change and when there's a difference in body weight mm -hmm. change you know that's energy and i did some hand calculations and that that cuts you know you're the the difference in body weight is almost a kilo of milk energy yep. in a kilo of milk so that pulls them the feed efficiency is pretty pretty close together so right you want there they may not be any more efficient they may just be partitioning the energy differently and not there's no more energy in the diet just where it goes so right well i was actually curious to get your guys's input is does that result surprise you with the difference in the starch and the body weight gain for me that was a surprise i expected it to be opposite yeah that's the expectation but this is why we do experiments so. <laughs> <laughs> exactly um i did on the stuff if we get to digestibility you know starch hammered fiber digestion as you'd expect mm -hmm. that, um but you didn't see and and dry matter digestibility didn't change or essentially the starch did not affect dry matter digestibility um and dry matter digestibility is essentially digestible energy they're virtually the same mm -hmm. so i think this is a good thing to remember you know starch is supposed to have all this energy compared to fiber but very often it doesn't really do a thing and your, your data showed that very clearly yeah, I go back to, so I spent my master's degree with Dr. Kononoff and he would always, he was good about making a step back and look at the whole picture like that. And it's like, you know, a, a gram of digested fiber and a gram of digested starch are fairly similar in their energy concentrations. And it's just a matter of how much each gets, each gets digested. And um, I love that the new NASA model came out and, sh and had that interaction in their digestibility or includes starch in some of those energy measures or um, as an interaction. So I was glad to see this data fit that quite nicely. And then if we look at, you know, the, the effect silage effect on digestibility, mm -hmm. you got a nice improvement in fiber digestibility, very, very significant and biologically important. Mm -hmm. Um, but you didn't see any difference in feed efficiency, which again, you'd expect based on the first law of thermodynamics, you sit there and say, where did that extra energy go to it. Where, where do you, what do you think's going on here? Cause you'd expect, I would have expected better feed efficiency with, with your digestibility data. That is the, one of the most infuriating results I've had in my young research career. Cause they don't align whatsoever. So we either violated the laws of thermodynamics or, um, just haven't put all the pieces together yet. And, you know, I, I, I really don't know. I wish I had a better answer than that. I'm, I'm not sure. Because with a, and like you said, it was not a small increase in digestibility. It was six, seven points, six, seven units. And that's that's pretty large. You would expect to see an increase in milk yield or, or body weight gain or milk fat or something. Um, and we just didn't observe it here. So I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But also, I think it's worth mentioning, our data is the most dramatic difference in digestibility across the three studies. There is some encouraging evidence that it, that this gene does provide a little boost to digestibility, but ours is the most dramatic. So I think it's important to recognize um, that just like in a single experiment, experiments themselves kind of occur on that bell curve, right? So this may be an outlier of a result. We don't know. So I hope that there's more data coming with this gene feeding it to cows um, to see if this um, digestibility result is the median of those results, or if it is the 1% extreme, we, we really don't know yet. Um, but I wish I had a better answer for you. Do, you. do you think, you know, this is again, essentially digestible energy, you'd expect more methane loss with 
with the antigen because of more mm -hmm. digestible fiber. So do you think if, if you were measured ME or maybe even NE, that that would explain it, that the digestible DE is higher, but then you lose all these efficiencies and at the end of the day, the net energy is the same. I think that, I think that would explain a fraction of it. Um, if, if this was a two, three point difference in NDF digestibility, I think I would basically say the methane loss and then the energy cascade would probably explain most of it, but it's such a big difference. I think there's something we're missing um, or just some random sampling variance from day to day that, that may have occurred. I, I'm not, I'm not certain. Um, and then, the, you know, you found a increase in protein digestion, mm -hmm. um, which again is, is not expected for me anyway. Um, what do you think, is, is there any, I guess, is there any possibility that this, gene insertion is changing like zeon concentrations or changing the the other proteins in this corn is there any i don't know if they've looked at this or yeah I'm, i haven't seen anything like that i haven't seen anything that would suggest dramatic changes in the composition of the the corn in general um and I, I haven't come up with with an excellent answer for that i mean i i thought maybe we're getting um some kind of ruminal effect that, you know, more thorough protein and nitrogen utilization that's going into milk. And, and, and that's actually suggested across studies, you know, we have the reduction in MUN, the improvement in crude protein digestibility, and um, a couple of the other studies observed, civil, ob, excuse me, observed similar results. Um, so I think there, there may be something to the enhancement of the amylase that may be driving some nitrogen use efficiency. That, that I think deserves more attention. Um, the, the the data bears that out so far. I think there's improvement in nitrogen use with these cows. And I think that's ruminal, you know, getting more microbial protein and more digestible protein that way is, is my my guess. Okay. So I guess, and, you, know, the, the, you know, if anybody knew anything, you hear amylase, you think everything has to be starch mm -hmm. uh, related to starch. And, you know, basically what you found, it was related to everything other, other than starch. So it's mm -hmm. important to think, think broader here than just one, one nutrient, all this stuff is connected. So, yeah, well, I think it, I, I, I can't remember what it, Cumberland Valley or Dairyland, one of the labs did some correlation analysis where they just took ground corn, put it in water and measured what was left in the water. Um, and they found an association between what they called soluble starch, which I don't think that's a good word for it, but, and, and the fatty acids that were released. So like you put a bag of corn in water, take it out. The amount of starch and the amount of fat left in the water was correlated. And so we don't have fatty acids here, but that would be an inter interesting piece of this too. Cause when you're feeding these high grain diets, you're delivering a great deal of fatty acids from corn. Um, and that's something we don't have here because it's so expensive to measure fatty acids. Um, but it might be an interesting piece of the puzzle as well. Kirby, I'm wondering if there's an opportunity um, to fine tune our nitrogen supply, uh, making sure that there's plenty of nitrogen available by either supplementing with urea, slow release urea, room degradable proteins, that kind of thing. Any thoughts mm -hmm. around that? Yeah, I, th I think um, I've been dreaming up all kinds of follow-ups for this. And that's one that I would find interesting is another interaction type experiment where we have the enhanced silage variety and the non-enhanced and then a higher and lower rumen degradable protein. I think there's an opportunity based on the data with reduced MUNs and improved milk protein and improved nitrogen efficiency that I've seen um, 
across these three studies that maybe the amylase enhancement would improve the use of RDP and make higher RDP diets more beneficial because you might get a little more microbial protein and maybe get more nitrogen incorporation into the milk. Um, again, I think that benefit's probably greatest early after harvest when this amylase seems to be most beneficial, but I think it's worth investigating because these applied nutrition questions, we're kind of tweaking around the edges, right? We're trying to just tighten things up because we're already really good at feeding cows. We're trying to just really tighten it up, get even better. So I think that's one opportunity. One other question was a little bit, your data was a little, I won't say confusing, but unexpected is, you know, you have the, the starch really hammered fiber digestion, which is expected, but you, usually when it does that, you start seeing some milk fat depression. Mm-hmm. And you didn't see any of that and any milk fat depression. What do you, what do you think? Why do you, why do you think the disconnect between them two? For the first thing I would say is, I mean, our, our milk, we didn't experience milk fat depression on the higher starch diets, but um, these cows were lower in milk fat than um, our dairies at right now. I mean, they were three, six, three, seven, our dairies regularly, the Michigan university research dairies usually, um, around four, like three, nine to four, one. So these were lower milk fat cows in general from uh, what we normally have. But I think when I think about the milk fat depression story and starch, even though we have this dramatic reduction of fiber digestibility, it's the source of the starch matters. You know, so this was dry ground corn. It was, a, it's a really fine dry ground corn. Um, but it wasn't a high moisture corn. It wasn't a, a barley or a wheat that would have all the really dramatic ruminal effects. So although NDF digestibility was suppressed, which even, and I, I was going to mention the reduction we saw is 2x what you would expect with the NASA model predictions. Um, we saw twice the reduction you would expect in our fiber digestibility based on that model. So this is, it is large, it is substantial. Um, but I think the source of the starch is why. It's, it, it's, not, a, it's not a super duper hot dry ground corn. It's not high moisture. It's not some other wet processed corn that would cause some dramatic ruminal changes. Starch digestibility are really good. They're as, mm-hmm. you know, as high as you're ever going to get. So yeah. even if it wasn't the, the super duper starch, it still was, you know, a lot of that could have been in the small intestine. You don't know what mm-hmm. it was digestible, but it was very digestible starch both, yeah. for both all diets. So, so Kirby, when, when you ran this study, when did it take place? Like, was it like November to January? Um, it was right around there. It was actually, um, I think we started late September, ended right before Thanksgiving. Okay. So it was it was the fall part of the year. I guess one one thing I forgot to ask, but I should have asked for at the very beginning. What what? Uh, how mature was this corn silage when you harvested it? Or the dry matter con- dry matter concentration? Um, I mean, the dry matter came out right right around the thirty five. Okay, so just a normal normal maturity then. Yeah, I want to make sure. Let me check the check the data table. But they were similar. It was, yeah, thirty five for both, and actually, um, yeah, thirty five point two, thirty five points point eight. So, if you would have done this, say with forty forty two percent dry matter silage stuff that was you know got away, mm-hmm. uh, do you think this this amylase would have a bigger effect than say on mature corn silage? I think there's a chance for that. Um, I think. As that starch kernel or the starch in the kernel matures, the kernel dries down. I think there's an opportunity that this amylase would have a greater impact. Um, I, I think that is something worth considering or worth investigating because we also got lucky. It was a great harvest year when we put this up. I was worried in June we didn't get any rain, and then we had a wonderful rest of summer, and it turned out to be perfect. Put up this silage this year, maybe a different story. I don't know. <laughs> 
do, do you know they, do they have different uh, hybrids with this with this gene, or is it just one one? Again, I think they call them hybrids, but is it just one, or do you, can you get some different traits with this, or different? To my traits? to my knowledge, I think you can get this trait. Put, <coughs> I think you can get this trait put into different hybrids. Okay. Um, the thing I still am unaware of, uh, and this comes with being a student sequestered in academia, is I don't know the cost difference of okay. if you have an and if this amylase enhancement, the brand name is Enogen, if they have this enhancement, I don't know what the cost difference is for hybrids. And so what I've and what I've told people is it's not gonna. There's not a reason not to do it. Um, the data is fairly encouraging, especially on the MUN and milk protein piece. But you've got to cost that out. Is if if there's a cost difference in the seed, you've got to decide if that's worth it for you. But I have started to discuss this in the context of if you're a farm that struggles with um, inventory, if you if you are always tight on corn silage come the end of the year, this gene and it's. Um, hybrids with this gene in it might be a really good option for you to get a little bit more out of that transition period when you're switching piles. Um, I, th I think that's where the opportunity lies with something like this, which is why I'd like to do a green chop study um, and really bear that out, see if there's a huge difference there in, in a green chop scenario. If that's a, if that works, you know, that would cut down on the needed inventory for any farm. You don't need to oh, carry yeah. three, three months of silage over. So it would have... Mm -hmm. Even if you're not sure, it would still be an economic savings if, if that pans out. Yeah, and, I, and it, just a cool applied question, right? Really creative applied approach to science that I think is, is always important to have. Well, I'm, gonna, I'm about done here, but I ask this question to every guest, and that is, you know, no, no experiment is perfect. Yep. What, what would you do if you could, with what you know now, you repeat the same experiment, what would you do? Same treatments, what would you do differently? Um, I think I, I've chewed on this a bit. And um, first of all, if we could have started the cows on study when we wanted to and had a, a seven day or two week fermented silage instead of a one month fermented silage, I really would have liked to see what that data looks like. I think, I think a great deal of the story with this amylase enhancement is early in that silage fermentation window. Um, even though that's only one or two months out of the year, I think that's super valuable. You know, I grew up on a dairy in South Dakota and there were years where was, when we switched corn silage, we'd lose eight or 10 pounds of milk and we could never figure out why. Um, and so I, I wish we could have started on time, but you know, here, my, my story of doing research at Michigan state is everybody wants transition cows and everyone wants high milk cows. And my PhD has been trying to use everything else. So we kind of, we kind of took what we had. Okay. They still averaged a hundred pounds of milk at the start of the trial though. Oh yeah, they, they did. But I think the, I, I'm trying, I, I try to be aggressive in moving my benchmarks, right? hundred yes. pound cow is a good cow. Yep. I, it's a really good cow. These, these cows made a lot of milk, but we have a lot of cows making 50, 60, 70 kilos of milk. Um, and I would love to get some of those on study. Right. And when I go, so um, my family milks cows in Minnesota over by Rochester and you know, it's a hundred pound herd, but they have pens of cows making 140 pounds. Mm -hmm. So we need more of those types of data sets where we can say these 140 pound cows, what the heck are they doing? And how the heck do we need to feed them to be even right. more efficient? Cause that's where we're going to get some really cool gains. So Kirby was, was the original design essentially the day this was harvested, the cows would have started on the two week covariate. 
Yeah, basically the day of harvest, we're going to move them in, start the baseline diet with last year's silage because we wanted to simulate that silage switch. And we still okay. did. It's just we didn't do it as soon as we wanted to. Right, right. Kirby, do you happen to know if uh, um, these these uh, silages are available in countries outside the U.S.? I'm not sure, um, but it, I mean, it is a, a GMO variety, right? Because it's, right. it's genetically modified. So I know that there would be restrictions and I, I don't know what the country to country restrictions are. All right. Fair enough. But what I'd like to do is ask you guys um, just to kind of give us a few takeaway uh, thoughts from today's conversation. And are there any, any items or advice that you would have for a consulting nutritionist and uh, based on this research? And Clay, I'm going to start with you. Do you have any thoughts for us? Tonight's last call question is brought to you by NitroSure Precision Release Nitrogen. NitroSure delivers a complete TMR for the rumen microbiome, helping you feed the microbes that feed your cows. To learn more about maximizing microbial protein output while reducing your carbon footprint, visit balcom.com slash NitroSure. Well, first thing, Kirby, I want to congratulate you on your on your new position there. So hey, thank you. I appreciate congratulations. it. Congratulations. Um, so, I mean, I love this paper, really, you know, good, good applied research. Um, it it is unfortunate unfortunate the design didn't work out exactly the way you had intended you know to feed it earlier because i'd be really interested to see how that would have worked in that case but the um you, you know th there's some interesting findings here and um and a lot of good data really you know comparing the lower and higher starch diets here as well that uh that can certainly can certainly be applied to the field kirby any any final thoughts for the audience yeah, I think as I've talked to people about these results, first of all, it's really fun to do good applied research like this. It's fun to be able to talk about it because people can use it right away. So I would say consider if you if you have clients or are a farm that has inventory challenges, I think consider the amylase enhanced gene as an approach to bridging that gap from year to year. Um, and I also think don't shy away from the from dietary starch if you've got quality forages and quality feeds because this study showed you get a bit of an enhancement in the gross feed efficiency the body weight change um, takes some of that away but you get a little more of milk per unit of feed intake which is important um, and i have a gut health interest and an animal health interest and i think what i was worried about is that the increase in dietary starch might cause some subclinical inflammation and we don't see an ounce of that um, and Barry and I actually wrote a review on that topic, too, about starch and, and gut-derived inflammation. And we just don't see the data for that yet. So don't shy away from starch because you have an animal health concern. It's going to drive production, drive energy into the cow. And it's something I'm hoping to investigate more as I start down in Ohio State. <laughs> um, got a few ideas for studies to kick that off. And the last thing I would say is come January 8th, if anyone has um, anything I can do to help them from Worcester, Ohio, please make sure to reach out. Yeah, good. And Bill, can you put a bow on this one for us? Well, first of all, you need a scarlet sweatshirt. As Curry was talking, I forgot one very important thing. The way you increase starch is you took out soy holes. You didn't take mm -hmm. out forage. And that's, a, I think, one explains a lot of why you didn't see any negative problems. So it's substitution, not just concentration. 
Um, but I think what this study shows is, you know, hybrid selection or corn silage selection affects the herd for 12 months. So that is one of the most important decisions a farmer and a nutritionist is going to make. And I think what, what Kirby was talking about, there's a lot of things that go into this and it might be just this, this silage may only benefit for, for three months or, or one month. Uh, and that has tremendous benefits. So you, you can't just look at papers and say, okay, this didn't do anything or this did something, but think about the whole picture. And again, the, as the, the silage ages, we know it changes a lot. And if, if this product actually would allow you to start feeding this stuff at green chop or you know, a week or two without this, this drag of the trans, silage transition, that has a huge economic benefit even though if it has no effect the next 10 months it, it, that first month or two if it affects it it's a huge benefit yeah great advice bill uh, bill i want to thank you for another great topic and uh and an even better guest you know kirby you've been outstanding uh wish you the best of luck as clay has said in in your new position and uh want to thank you for coming along with us clay it's always a joy to have you here at the real science exchange Loyal listeners, we appreciate you. We thank you for uh, sharing uh, this evening with us. We hope you learned something. We hope you had some fun. And we hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange, where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends. We'd love to hear your comments or ideas for topics and guests. So please reach out via email to anh.marketing at balchem.com with any suggestions, and we'll work hard to add them to the schedule. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on your way out. You can request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt in just a few easy steps. Just like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address and t-shirt size to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Balchem's Real Science Lecture Series of webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month, monogastric-focused topics on the second Tuesday of each month, and quarterly topics for the companion animal segment. Visit balchem.com slash real science to see the latest schedule and to register for upcoming webinars.